The scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray that now as we come to your word that you would um, be gracious to us, that you would draw us to this passage, that it would bring light to our minds and faith in our hearts and action in our lives. And so I pray now, please uh, overcome any resistance that we have overcome any, any, any weakness in the preacher and that you would cause us to delight in your word. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, please. I want to read verses 11 through 15. Um, please now, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, having known the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast, out, who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, we've been asking the question, Uh, Because it's a biblical question, that is, it's the question that this text, I think, deals with. Not this one I just read, but the previous. So we've been asking the question, how is it that Paul was able to continue doing what he did without losing heart? He said he didn't lose heart. He said he was always of good courage. So the question is, how did he do that, uh, knowing what we know about his life, that he faced persecution uh, from inside the church and outside the church, um, uh, opposition came his way uh, all the time, it seemed. Whether it was from those outside of the church, even inside the church. That's why he's writing this particular letter, because there was opposition to him in the church in Corinth. And so he writes to them to try to deal with that uh, here. So, so how, how, did he, how, did he, how did he continue on without, without losing heart? How could he have good courage in the midst of that? The persecution, the affliction he talked about, the pressure, the stress he felt from the outside... Uh, the, the, the weakness in his own life uh, physically uh, after the, all the beatings and the persecution plus his aging and all of that uh, would take a toll on his life and just the physical weakness of what he was called to do all the travel and all the work and all of that how did he, how did he continue on without losing heart how did he maintain real good courage if you will in the midst of, of his own personal physical weakness? How did he do it in the midst of emotional weakness? There were times he said he, for, he felt forsaken, left for dead. How did, how, did he, how did he get up from that and continue on in the midst of that? He said that he was, he was perplexed, he was bewildered at times. He didn't understand what was going on, what God was doing. How did he, how did he continue on in the midst of that? Emotionally, spiritually, he, he, he was a man, he knew Real temptation to sin. He talks about temptation to pride 
in chapter 12 of this particular letter. In chapter 7 of the book of Romans, he speaks of, of the temptation to, to covet, which he said then, then caused him to break all the other ones too. And so he knew that about himself. He was a man. It's like you and me. And so how did he continue on with his calling to be an apostle in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of his own weakness? That's an important question, was an important question for us, because we, we face that we're not the apostle, we, we don't have the same calling as he perhaps, but we have callings in our lives to, to follow Christ, to being, being husbands and, and wives and fathers and mothers and friends and citizens and workers and, and, and all of that, those callings upon us to follow Christ in the midst of, of each of those. And so how is it that we continue on in the midst of a world that's not always favorable to who we are as believers in Jesus and not open to the gospel and all of that? And, and we have the, the church as well as a calling for all of us to, to, to serve one another and to, to share with each other and in the context of our lives in the world that which is true of Christ. How do we continue on? So we've, we've dealt with all of that. If you wonder about that, go back to those particular messages. Today, with another question, not so much uh, how, but why. What drove him? What compelled him? What motivated him, if you will? What was the reason that he kept doing it? What was the reason he kept doing it? An important question for us because we need a reason too. And, and that's why we come to the scripture. We come to the scripture to inform us, to train us, to teach us. We need to be motivated by what's supposed to motivate us. And so as the apostle speaks of what motivated him, what drove him, what was his reason for continuing on as he did to follow up to Christ in his calling, uh, uh, we ask the same question. So, so what should motivate us? And then does it? If it should, if it's a motivation, if it's a thing that's given to us by God to drive us, then it should drive us. So we should embrace it so that it would... Drive us. This makes sense. You know where I'm going with this? What's the reason why we continue on? I think, if God will help me, I think in this passage we, f- we find three. One overriding, but three. One is that Paul knew the fear of the Lord. And second, he knew the favor of God. And third, he knew the love of Christ. All right, so, so think of those. These aren't unique to me. If you find those clever, don't give me praise. I, I steal generously. And so, so these are common things to think through as you read through this passage. That, that he knew the fear of the Lord. He knew the favor of God. And he knew the love, the love of Christ. Notice how he puts it in verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing... The fear of the Lord. Now the therefore ties it to what he's been talking about. And what he's been talking about is that we should, we all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We talked about this last Sunday. That every human being, believers and unbelievers, and Paul speaking to believers, essentially even about himself, that he realized that he himself, as well as all the believers in Corinth and all to whom would read this letter, that, that we all will appear uh, be examined before, be exposed before the judgment seat of, of Christ. Paul knew that, and that was something that drove him to do what he did. Now, remember, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, especially here, we're not simply meaning, or even meaning, being afraid. When I think of fear, I think of being afraid. I think of, 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 of being afraid of that which could hurt me. Now, the truth of the matter is, 
If you're an unbeliever, if you have sins unforgiven because you don't trust in Christ and thus his atoning work, his death didn't pay the penalty for your sin. If you're an unbeliever, then you should be terrified, right? That's a rational fear. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he agonized. The reason he agonized is he knew what was going to happen to him. He knew that he was going to have placed upon him the guilt of humanity. He knew that he was going to have placed uh, upon him the wrath of God. And you know the struggle if you read that passage. You know it. He struggled. Could this cup pass from me? And it was rational. Who wouldn't? Does a man pray that, want that? Who would want to go through the wrath of God? And so Jesus himself, it's a, don't be afraid of the one who can just, you know, kill your body, but be afraid of the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. So it's a reasonable, rational fear, afraid, terror, kind of fear. But when Paul talks about knowing the fear of the Lord because he's going to face the judgment seat of Christ, he isn't afraid for his own soul. He knows that there isn't any condemnation uh, in Christ Jesus for those who trust in him. In fact, he knows that that when he goes before the judgment seat of Christ, that it's this very one Jesus who died for him, who is the judge in Romans in chapter 8. Paul writes these very soothing and comforting in profound words, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The judge is also defending us all at the same time, which is a great position uh, to be in, right? And so he knows it isn't about his eternal soul that's that's up for grabs here. He he knows that he is secure there. So so why does he mention this fear of the Lord? What, What happens when he thinks of the judgment seat of Christ? Why does it give him pause? Why does it make him stop and just, just get this sense, right? The Paul just stops as he thinks of the judgment seat of Christ. And you get a sense that it just sort of sobers him up. Because you see, he said that he lived, should live, that he lived to please the Lord. And now he thinks of his own life. And he thinks of being in the presence of Jesus. And he thinks of being at the judgment seat of Christ. And he thinks of his life being exposed. He thinks of all of that. And I think he begins to wonder, have I pleased him? And I think he begins to to think, I I don't want to be in that situation having not pleased him. I, I don't want to be in that spot where my works aren't exposed as good. They'll be, they'll be exposed as forgiven, all the sins, but, but I want those things which God has worked in me to be exposed, to be revealed as good. And for his glory, so that he's glorified by what he's done in me. And I think he just pauses, knowing that, and it brings to him this sense of the fear of the Lord, standing in the Lord's presence, in awe of his wonder, and, and just saying, Oh, that I, 
that I might please him. And that on that day, it really be revealed. And I think that even as he thinks of that, he, he, he pledges himself, he devotes himself. He says, oh God, please, please help me from this day forward to live to please you. So that on that day, it will be revealed that you worked in me in such a way that I was able to please you. That my works would, would, would reveal the faith that I have in you, the, the love that I have for you, the work that you've done in me. And I think that's the sense of the, the fear of of, of of the Lord. There's a sense in which I think he looks at his life and he says, Oh, I hope on that day it will reveal, be revealed that my life was lived in worship to God. You know, we've said before that, that what we fear, we worship. And what we worship, we obey. And I think on that day, Paul's hope, my hope, our hope is that we've feared the Lord, that is, we've worshipped him and thus obeyed him. This idea of what we, what we fear, we, we worship, or we worship, we obey. For instance, if you're afraid, if we just go back to the, the, the very pedestrian use of the word fear, if, we, if, we, if you're afraid of the dark, <laughs> then the dark becomes an idol for you and it dictates your life. You stay out of dark places. Right? You worship it in that sense. I, I have a real fear. This is probably too many mafia movies. I, I have a fear of being locked in a trunk uh, and, and bound and gagged. It just—it's just a nightmare waiting to happen. Karen's thinking, "Oh, he's not going to sleep tonight because of just waiting." But it just really—I mean, uh, claustrophobia, right? That this fear and it dictates. I do stay out of locked trunks, but um, uh, if I can help it. But 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 this sense of what we fear, right? We, we set up as an idol. We worship it. And we obey it. That it dictates, it dictates our life. And I think what Paul's desiring here is that he fears the Lord, really. He worships the Lord. And on that day, it's revealed that he's worshipped the Lord. That is, he's obeyed him. So that drives him. That's the reason he gets up in the morning. To again worship the Lord. To again please the Lord. And I look at my own life. Is that why I get up in the morning? Do I get up in the morning? Uh, I've shared this before. I do this. It's a little messy. But I, I, I don't know why. But I always say Psalm 100 while I'm brushing my teeth. And I do that. <laughs> Because brushing my teeth is one of the first things I do when I get up. Just roll out of bed, boom, this thing's right there. And, and I do that instinctively, really, but it engages me. I make a joyful noise before the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. He has made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Therefore, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Serve the Lord with gladness. That's, that's, that's what I have. We just have to stop. Because that, that should define. I want that. I want that to define my day. Serve the Lord with gladness. This is what I want to do. To please him. Paul's driven by this sense that a day will come. Before the judgment seat of Christ. And what he wants more than anything on that day. Is for his life to be revealed in such a way. 
that says that he had faith in Jesus that led to doing that which was good and that he had worshipped the Lord with his life and obeyed him. Right? So that's, that's, I think, the reason. And he continued on in the midst of all that. And he goes on to say, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, now he, he knew that everybody would go before the judgment seat of Christ. So there's a sense in which he would persuade others of that. You might remember when Paul was in Athens of all places, and he was, he was relating there to the philosophers and the wise ones of, of their city. And they had a, a statue there to the unknown God. And so Paul is revealing who this unknown God is. He's the true and living God. And, uh, and, and he goes on, Paul then says, uh, verse 30 in Acts 17, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people to repent. To everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead and so even though Paul's talking to the intellectuals the philosophers uh, no matter how unpopular it might sound to them the truth of the matter is that there is a day coming and so he wished to persuade all men that that day was coming so they would repent of their sins and believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that drove him. He persuaded men because he had the fear of the Lord. He knew what was to come. But also he persuaded this church in Corinth and all men uh, of his own integrity and sincerity. That was on his mind as well to persuade them of that because, because they were denouncing him. Some false apostles had come through Corinth. He called the super apostles sarcastically. And, uh, and they had come through Corinth and they were, they were um, uh, putting Paul down. And so some in Corinth were now doubting whether the gospel that Paul was preaching was really true. Because you see these false apostles are judged by appearances. And uh, they, they, they said, well, look at Paul. He doesn't look like much. And, and he, he really can't speak very eloquently. He doesn't use big words. He doesn't use fancy uh, oratory. He, he just lays it out plainly. Uh, not only that, they, they, they boasted in their heritage. Paul had a great heritage for what he was doing, but he never boasted in it. In fact, he said, I, I count that as rubbish. I don't even want to talk about that. I never bring that up, that, that, that I was, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews and that I, I was trained well by the best teachers. I was a Pharisee. He never brings that up. He brings it up in Philippians chapter three, only to say that doesn't mean anything. Don't look to that at all. And so they would bring up their heritage. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not important. Don't be impressed with me because of that. Um, uh, they had big revelations and, and uh, they had visions and all kinds of things. And Paul says, well, I do too, but, but I never talk about that. I never talk about that. When I'm, he said, even now he puts it, verse 13, he says, if we're beside ourselves, uh, it's for God. I mean, if we have these ecstatic experiences, you might think we're crazy. Uh, 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 that's for God. That's just a private, personal thing. You remember when Paul was writing in his first epistle to the church in Corinth, they were speaking in tongues all over the place and all the time. And Paul says, I speak in tongues more than you all. But I never do it in public. Because I don't want that to impress you. That's not the point of it. 
Even in chapter 12, Paul's going to say, I knew a man (laughs) who had this great vision, this great experience. He went up to the third heaven. But God gave him a thorn in the flesh so he wouldn't be proud of it. So Paul said, you never knew about that. I don't talk about that. Because that's not, that's just between me and God. You know, today in, in our world, you turn on the television and, and most of the TV preachers, not the, the legitimate ones, but, but the others, I'll let you define them, uh, but the others, they, they always lead with a vision or some kind of big revelation or some kind of big deal that's happened in their lives. Paul would never do that. Paul would start out very clearly and very logically speaking of the cross of Jesus. So I would say to the church in Corinth, I didn't want to know anything about you save Christ and him crucified. That's all I want to talk to you about. And these false apostles would say, you know, Paul just said like a, like a, 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 a one trick pony. Uh, you know, he just talks about one thing all the time. And he doesn't, have all, he doesn't tell us about these great experiences, doesn't tell us about these great revelations. And Paul said, no, of course not. I have those that's between me and the Lord. But when I'm with you, I want to be very clear, very logical, very reasoned, very true about these, about these things. And then he says, the only reason I want to persuade you about my integrity is just so that you may be able to answer those who boast out about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul says, it's, what about, it's what's in the heart that matters. I've been called by God, he says. My outward appearance isn't much. My speech isn't much. I don't go on and on about revelations. I don't try to impress you about who I am. But, but I have this truth of Jesus. I don't know if you know, I hope you do, that that's really what defines us as a church. We always smile about not being trendy. We always smile about not jumping on the next best thing. We, we always smile about the fact that here we are, how many decades later as a church still doing pretty much the same thing the same way saying the same stuff we have a different facility but such is life and the appreciation we have I do that I know that when you're out and about you defend us we may err and we do but it isn't because we want to. And you're kind, as Paul says, to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. But, but, but then notice this, verse 13, um, well, I missed the verse, verse 12. I'm sorry, the end of verse 11. Paul says, but what we are is known to God. So it's not only the fear of the Lord that motivates him, that, that drives him, that is, is his reason why, but also there's something here, I think, that, that he's, he's known, known to God. God knows his heart. And he says, but what we are is known to God, and what I hope uh, it is known also to your conscience. So, so Paul says, I don't know if I can convince you of it. I, I hope in your conscience you... you, 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 you you know I'm sincere, but, but he says, what I am is known to God. What great 
comfort he had in that, what great security he had in that, what great reason for going on and ability to go on, even in the midst of opposition, because he knew that he had the very favor of God, that God knew him. God knew he was a sinner. God knew uh, that uh, Paul had been a persecutor of the church and all of that. And yet God saved him and God called him. And so Paul knew that. He knew that he had the favor of God. And so the freedom that that gave him. He said, they, the false apostles in the opposition, they may not... They might not like me. They may criticize me. They may put me down. He says, but, but, but God knows my heart and, and God has called me and I have his favor so I can get up in the morning and I can keep going on because I know that I have the favor of God. What a thing to know. I hope you know that. I hope that you know in your life as a believer in Jesus, that God's grace has been given to you in such a way that you belong to him, that he is for you. And you know that so that even in the face of opposition, in the face of criticism because you're a follower of Jesus, in the face of how you live your life because you're a follower of Jesus, that you can get up the next day and say, I can continue on because... God's for me. I know his favor. And then finally this. Paul knows something both objectively and subjectively about the love of Christ. Verse 14. He says the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ dominates us. The love of Christ is is that which uh, uh, compels us, he says. And when you use that word control or compel, however it's defined or translated in your, in your Bible version, uh, when he talks about being compelled by the love of Christ, he's talking about not so much the love that Paul has for Christ, which he does, but the love that he knows that Christ has for him. This is the love that Christ has for him. We know that because how he defines it in just a minute, how he, how he, how he lays it out. But this is the love that God has for him really in Jesus, this Love of Christ. He knows that he's loved by Christ. Therefore, he's compelled no longer to live for himself, but to live for Christ. He now has the freedom no longer to live for himself, but to live for Christ. Now, when Paul says, I no longer live for myself, he isn't talking about sort of the general kind of self-concern that we have for for ourselves. Jesus said, with a love our neighbor as ourself. That wasn't a command to love ourselves. That was a recognition that we do. That, that there's a certain concern for us, you know. Uh, Paul says, when he's talking about husbands and wives, he says, husbands, love your wives like you love your own body because, because nobody hates his own body. Everybody feeds and cares for your own body. So, so Paul isn't saying, I shouldn't take care of myself or any of that. But what he's saying is, that there's, there's a, 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 a living for myself that excludes God. There's a living for ourselves that excludes God. It started, we know, in the Garden of Eden, uh, where Adam and Eve, Adam particularly, uh, wanted to live a life that excluded God. When he disobeyed God, he, Adam did fell prey to the temptation that we all know. You can be like God in your own life. 
You can be like God in the world. You can determine what's good and evil. You can determine how you're to live your life. And Adam fell for that once he did. Then he ran and hid from God because he didn't want God to be around him. He wanted to be his own guy and live his own life. Plus he knew he was under then, no doubt, condemnation of God. But he hid to live his own way. And there's that there's that kind of life. And, and, and it's the life that we're all born into physically. Uh, we're all born into this kind of life that wants to live exclusive of God. Uh, it manifests itself in life in all kinds of ways. Uh, it can be a, an overt hostility against God. People who rail against him and, and say he doesn't exist. And if he does exist, he's evil. Not to be loved and obeyed. It's often more subtle than that. We kind of live in a don't ask, don't tell world when it comes with God. I'll just pretend as if he doesn't exist and all is well and I'll I'll do the best I can and I'll just ignore God. Um, Sometimes as believers, we fall prey to a redefinition of God. We kind of define God in our own image. We domesticate him so that... We can easily live with him as opposed to allowing him to domesticate us and to train and to change us to live with him. Uh, I remember years ago, um, one of our former youth directors, Rick Mumford, he was smiling one day. He came to me and he said, you know, that song that we used to sing called What a Mighty God We Serve. I said, yeah. He said, you know what I thought that was when I was a kid? And I said, what? He said, I thought we were singing What a Mighty God We Swerve. They go, yeah, that's pretty telling about us, isn't it? We kind of swerve when he's consciously present and brings to us that which we should do. And we move out of the way thinking all is, all is well. So however it comes, we find ourselves seeking our own interests, not God's, following our own wisdom, not God's, following our own passions, not his our own loves, not his. What we think will satisfy rather than what he tells us will satisfy. And Paul says, that's a deep bondage. And when you know the love of Christ, you're compelled to leave that behind. You see, no, 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 not that, but to live for him. Because why wouldn't I live for one who has so loved me? Why would I live for any other than this one who so has loved me. And Paul knew this love of Christ, first objectively what it did to free him, and then also subjectively what it meant then to compel him. For instance, notice how he puts it in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. Now, First and foremost, this love wasn't something that Paul necessarily felt. I'm sure he did, we do, but it's something he understood. It was a conclusion, it was a conviction. He says, I know this to be true. No matter how I feel, I know this to be true. It was a conviction, it was reasoned. He looked at something, he had seen something that had taken place, and he said, that is it, that proves it, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that proves the love of Christ. And in this what proved the love of Christ, it was the death of Christ 
for us. He says that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, uh, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so Paul gets it. He understands that death, spiritual, physical and spiritual death, condemnation by God came uh, through Adam to all. Spiritual life from Jesus to another all. Paul summarizes this seven time for all the passages. Paul summarizes this in one amazing statement. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. See, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Romans 5, verse 12. You can find that later. Romans 5, verse 12. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. And you might want to say, well, I wasn't there. Oh, yes, you were. You were in him. He was a representative. And you say, well, that's not fair. Really? You would have done something differently? He was the perfect representative of all humanity. Who could be a better representative of all humanity than the perfect one? The one God made to be the representative of all humanity at that point. And, and he sinned. And so in him, we all sinned. And when, we, when Adam sinned and us, we sinned. When we were born, we were born in this condition of sin and guilt and corruption and depravity and all of that. It affected everything about us. And so Paul knew about himself in that state of being in Adam. And so he knew that his only way out from death, spiritual, physical, every way, condemnation from God, the wrath of God, was the death of Christ. In fact, I read about that earlier this morning uh, in our liturgy. Romans in chapter 6. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul knew that on the cross of Jesus something objective happened. The penalty for the all in Christ was paid. The power of sin for the all in Christ was broken, which freed us from guilt and sin's power to enable us then to no longer live for ourselves, the sin of it, and now live for Christ. Something really happened. You know that old spiritual, were you there when they nailed him to the tree? For believers, the answer is yes. For unbelievers, the answer is yes. For unbelievers, the answer is yes. We were saying, kill him. For believers, we were there in him. When he died, we died. So that when he would rise, we would rise to newness of life. Something happened. Don't ever look at a cross without realizing something happened. Not only to Jesus, but to all in him. 
And then there's a subjective element to this. That Paul begins to ask the question, I think, how do I know that I'm in Christ? How do I get there? How do I know that I'm in Christ? And the way Paul would would describe being in Christ had nothing to do with him. He describes it in Ephesians chapter 1 in a way that can only, at least for me, give me cold chills. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul said, I'm in Christ because God put me there. There's no other reason for me to be there. I was in Adam because I was born here, but, but in Christ, there was a different thing, a different all. That all of those, the people that God put in Jesus, and we know them because they'll be believers in Jesus. And he says, and at that point, I think, I think he, he had cold chills. I think he realized, oh my. Every Holy Week, and you know this about me, I've shared this before. Every Holy Week, I spend at least one of my days, usually the Thursday of that week, thinking about what it would have been to be the eldest son in an Israelite household in Egypt. I happen to be the eldest son in my family. Not a difficult thing. I have three older sisters. But I often I meditate upon what it must have been like for that eldest son to wake up the next morning when the Egyptian moms and dads were mourning the death of their eldest sons. And here I find myself alive. And I wonder why I didn't do anything. I may have been playing with those Egyptian boys just yesterday. And now I find myself alive and I go out and I look at the doorpost and I see blood, a lamb, for me, I guess. Why? Because I happen to be a child of Abraham. I happen to be a child of Abraham. Abraham had chosen, been chosen by God to begin his people. But I just as far as I could tell, happened to be one. But now I'm alive. And when I think I'm alive for all eternity, the penalty of sin has been paid. The power of sin has been broken. Someday the presence of sin will be gone. And I'll know that. I'll be in that. All because I'm in Christ. How'd that happen? I don't have any other explanation. But that God placed me. In Christ. Some of you know this is historically in the life of the church. Reformation Sunday. Much could be said about that period of history in the church. But one of the things that came thought about. Ascribed to the reformer Luther. Was that Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. He's my savior. 
Christ died for me. Paul knew that. And when he knew that, he knew the love of Christ. And it compelled him. It compelled him to no longer live for himself. He said, I no longer need to. The power of sin has been broken. I no longer need to. I'm free. And now I want to. Because I've been loved by this Jesus in such a way that I want to serve him. Why wouldn't I? This table, the presence of Jesus. Not physically, spiritually, he's here. The presence of Jesus. And I think here we we see it all, really. We see all that should drive us. We see the fear of the Lord because of the judgment seat of Christ. As I mentioned, Jesus saw that judgment seat and he agonized and said, Father, is there any way for this cup to pass? What's, What's astounding, what's sobering, what takes my breath away? is the fact that the father said to the son, no, there is no way this cup can pass. But when I say to the father, is there any way that this cup of wrath can pass? He says, yes. The, the, the love of Christ. And I know the favor of the Lord. I, I see it here. He gives grace to the weak. He gives grace to sinners. He gives grace To those who repent and come to in faith. And I see the favor of the Lord. So no matter if everybody else rejects me. (laughs) I know that God favors me. And this too. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread. After giving thanks he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said this is my body which is given for you. In the same way. He took the cup after giving thanks. This too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as we eat of this bread, the apostle says, and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What we proclaim the love of Christ. As we come to this table, we receive the love of Christ. Now, it'd be easy for me to say something like, this would be the next preacher line, to say, are you motivated by the love of Christ? I'll let you wrestle with that on your own next week. What I want to ask you is this. Do you know it? Do you know the love of Christ? Really? Do you know yourself to really be a sinner in the sight of God? Really without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. Do you know that? Do you know that you have received his sovereign mercy only by way of his sovereign grace to put you in 
that you might be the beneficiary of all that Christ has done. Do you know that? And do you know that that is the deepest and greatest manifestation of the love of God? And do you know that's for you and to you? Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us, that we'd know it. That at this moment we would know the fear of the Lord, the favor of God, the Father, and the love of Christ. So that as we come to this table, And we leave it, then we're compelled to die to sin, to live for Christ, to take up our cross, to follow him, and that that's the joy of our lives. Please, God, set aside this bread and this juice in such a way that we'll know that we're in the very presence of this one who has so loved us and given himself for us. This, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.